0: Hello and welcome to the next installment of the History Twins podcast. Today we are interviewing Professor Teofilo Ruiz of the University of California, Los Angeles. Ruiz specializes in the history of medieval Spain and has written many books, including Spain's Centuries of Crisis, 1300 to 1474, and Spanish Society, 1400 to 1600, and The City and the Realm, Burgos and Castile, 1080 to 1492, which is a collection of essays. Uh, Professor Ruiz, we'll start with your work, uh, Spain's Centuries of Crisis. Uh, could you briefly describe the state of the Iberian Peninsula in the year 1300? 1300, it depends, because uh, each
1: kingdom was different into itself. In 1300, in the
2: Kingdom of Castile, which was the main realm in the Iberian Peninsula,
1: there was a period of great disruption and anarchy. There was a royal
2: minority. The king had, well, Ferdinand IV had just come to age uh, he was not the most cunning of kings. Uh, they are great in changes taking place in the economy.
0: Uh, yes, uh, by the and then what other? So of course uh, we think of Spain today as being simply one unified state. But what other states existed in on the Iberian Peninsula in the in the year 1300? In, in 1300, you have the Kingdom of Portugal
2: in the west coast of the of the peninsula, the Kingdom of Castile, which was the largest both demographically and territorially, extending from the Bay of Biscay and from the Atlantic, all the way in 1300 to the Mediterranean and to the Atlantic in the south. You have the Crown of Aragon, which is divided into three kingdoms, each of one with their own institutions, laws, and even languages, which is the, the Kingdom of Aragon, Catalonia, and the Kingdom of Valencia. and They are, together of them, are known as the Crown of Aragon. By that time, the Crown of Aragon has also possession of the Balearic Islands, Mallorca, Minorca, Ibiza, but also of Sicily as well, so that the King of Sicily is also the king of the Crown of Aragon and of the Kingdom of Mallorca. Then you have the Kingdom of Navarre in the north, in the Pyrenees, and, of course, Granada as the last outpost of Islam in the peninsula. All these different kingdoms have different histories, different developments. By 1300, all throughout Europe, the period of expansion and economic growth has come to an end. In Castile, the crisis can be dated to the mid-13th century. It is a demographic crisis, populations are declining, there is inflation, Uh, there are all kinds of other difficulties. Uh,
0: Now, why was the growth of the crown's power faster in Castile than in Aragon? The, kingdom, the crown of Aragon uh,
2: was a very different, shall we say, institution or, uh, of, of animal from the rest of the peninsula. In the crown of Aragon, the kings have to contend with three different parliaments. The parliament in Aragon, the parliament in Catalonia, which is always very contentious, and the parliament in Valencia. And so the kings of the crown of Aragon found far easier to look into the Mediterranean and expand into the Mediterranean and put their energies into the Mediterranean, rather than trying to tame all these three different kingdoms, which were very difficult to deal with. In Castile, we cannot speak of centralization either. In fact, the Castilian crown goes from periods of fairly strong assertion of the power, the kings, periods of sheer anarchy sure it's not until the catholic monarchs in the late 15th century that you could say that the kingdom of castile is somewhat centralized Mm -hmm. i think it was less centralized than we have assumed until recently but nonetheless was far more centralized than the crown of aragon and one of the consequences of this very different histories is that when the catholic monarchs institute a series of reforms in castile they really neglect the crown of aragon because it's just too complicated i think i wrote in my book that the crown of aragon was a heartache and a,
0: and a headache it was very difficult to to control uh, so uh, during these uh, civil wars, which we were mentioning earlier, uh, the alliances of Castilian noble factions, uh, as in the reign of Henry the Fourth, fourteen fifty four to fourteen seventy four, Ferdinand the Fourth, twelve ninety uh, five to thirteen twelve, were very transient. Why was this the case? And wouldn't they've collectively achieved more uh, than they had been than uh, than uh, the, if they had been able to form a lasting pact against the crown? This is a very complicated and a very good question.
1: Essentially, what it is, is that noble families, noble
2: families, were always in contention with each other. The crown, even when the crown was weak, was nonetheless the last repository of income, lands, titles, and privileges. So, essentially, what the nobility wants to do is to control the king. But, of course, it's not that they all as a whole, as nobles, want to control the king and the kingdom. They want individually as families or as clans or as lineages to control the king. And so what you have is a free-for-all in which you have a rather selfish nobility, self-centered. Most of them created out of the Civil Wars of the 1360s when Henry II, the Trastamara usurper, granted huge titles and donations to those nobles who would support him. So you have an old nobility that begins to disappear in Castile. You have a new nobility that is emerging in the 14th century. Each of them essentially trying to secure as much as they can for their own lineages. This is not unusual. This is not unusual to the Iberian Peninsula. It happens in England. The War of the Roses is an example of this. It happens in France in the 14th century and into the early 15th century with the divisions between the Orleanes and the Burgundians and the so that this is a pattern is called vaster feudalism and is the the realization by noble houses that the power is, is being slowly eroded, not at every time, not always, because in Castile for example, the nobility or some noble families are able to control the crown, such as Alvaro de Luna, to John II or the Pachecos, the Villenas, to Henry IV. Nonetheless, they know that royal power is becoming more effective and they're all trying to essentially block this expansion of royal power, but they never unite. What you have is some people who are loyal to the king and others who are not. Some people who are loyal, most of all, to their own interests and to the promotion of their families.
0: So in some sense it's sort of a giant prisoner's dilemma, one might say. <laughs> but yes, uh, let's see. So uh, why was Alfonso the Eleventh, thirteen twelve to thirteen fifty, otherwise I would say a fairly competent ruler, uh, so quick to lavish titles on the Trastamaras, who uh, whom we mentioned earlier, these were his bastard children, uh, and thereby laid the groundwork for a terrible civil war in Castile. Again, uh,
2: I was thinking about this question when I read it yesterday, and I was thinking about this this morning as well. And historians have great difficulties truly understanding the past or accessing the past fully. The past is something that we see through a glass darkly, through a veil. So what we can not judge as historians is the the fact that Alfonso XI loved his concubine, who was a woman of a very significant and important family, the Guzman family, and loved his bastard children and bestowed upon them extraordinary richness and titles and possessions of privilege. He might not have had the same sentiments towards his own son, Peter I, and most certainly not towards his own wife, the queen. So, essentially, this is a one of the cases in which personal preferences, personal attitudes, one's feelings about specific individuals affects and impacts history. But we can never know what was in the heart of Alfonso XI or why he was so essentially committed to this second family that created. And, you know, he had, what, 12 children? with uh, his mistress, with his concubine. Let me add to that, that of course this is not unusual, and that Peter I, who is the legitimate son of Alfonso XI, will do exactly the same with his mistress, Inés de Padilla, whom he adored, and will gain revenge on his half-brothers, and essentially on, on their mother as well. But it's very difficult to assess What are the personal feelings of a king
0: in this period, which is very difficult indeed to determine. Did he he seem to consider the prospect of a civil war, though, or...? Uh, did he think that his children would be would play nice in other words and not try to fight amongst each other I think he hoped for the second and got the first right well of course he hoped for it but uh, <laughs> do you think that he was that uh, he thought like civil war was just very unlikely because his children all loved each other or did he think that uh, they, they didn't like each other is there any sign of this uh, my sense of this is that of course he died in
1: 1350 he was essentially, uh, 38
2: years old when he died. He died in the siege of uh,
1: Gibraltar and uh, of the Black Death, the only king in Europe who
2: died on the impact of the plague. But nonetheless, I don't think he thought that this was going to be a problem in the immediate future. He thought of himself as living perhaps a few more years and being able to settle the realm. It's the fact that he dies as he does.
0: So the suddenness the suddenness of his death, in other words, probably had... Correct. You did ...not allow him the opportunity of settling the
2: kingdom, or allowing Peter to establish his own power, or, or uh, associate him in the throne. I, I wish to say that, of course, in the Siete Partidas, which becomes a secondary law code in 1348, by the work of Alfonso XI at the Ordenamiento del Cala of Henares, it is suggested that the kings choose mistresses or concubines from among the best families in the realm. So, in doing so, he was following a kind of legal tradition of kings uh, aligning themselves with families from the kingdom, from the kingdom of Castile, as opposed to a wife that allied him with, in this case, Portugal, rather than with internal groups of people. So that there was something politically important for Alfonso to essentially please the Guzman family, which is the leading family in the south, which is a place of contention. And so it is very important and significant.
0: Uh, So why did so many Castilian monarchs even threatened with powerful domestic factions, or indeed uh, civil war, which would see them dethroned, undertake foreign military campaigns against the other Iberian kingdoms, particularly Granada? The case of Don Alvaro, for for example, seems uh, somewhat stand out to me.
2: (laughs) Well, again, this is also a significant and complex question. There are several things that are important to note here. One is, of course, that not all conflicts in the peninsula are alike, and each one has to be placed within a very specific context. In the 12th century, there is great struggle between Castile and Aragón, and it really follows from very different reasons and different lines from the conflicts that plagued the 15th century between the crown of Aragón and Portugal and Castile, Castile and Castilla, the Crown of Aragon. So each one are really part of dynastic wars, and they are replicated in the rest of Europe. The Hundred Years' War. In fact, a great deal of the conflicts between factions within the realms and faction and, and the struggle and conflicts between individual kingdoms are because of the the sort of the entering of the war into the Iberian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Having said that. I have to add that a great deal of these are really intrafamilial struggles for control, or for lands, or for boundaries, or for access to certain resources. In the case of Granada, which is the place that most of the Castilian kings, as opposed to the crown of Aragon kings, dedicate most of their efforts, is because campaigns against Granada are immensely profitable. They are not so much profitable in the acts of war against Granada because Granada is a very difficult place to take, it's surrounded by mountains. But because whenever the king declares a crusade against Granada, and there is a whole formula and ritual of declaring this a crusade, the church is compelled to support financially. So you need money, let's go against Granada. You pick up the money from the church and then you don't do very much. You show your colors on the Granada frontier and come
0: back, which is a pattern of history until the Catholic monarchs. Uh, Could there have possibly been some sort of rally around the flag effect where the king hoped that by attacking Granada, he would rally up domestic support for a war with some despised foreigners, for instance?
2: That is correct. And against Islam, it was a kind of a trope, that exists in Castile from the great conquest of the 13th century at the middle of the 13th century when Seville and Córdoba and the Atlantic coast of Castile were taken by the Christians to the later idea of essentially showing the colors, rallying the the people around the flag, but also far more significant, (coughs) collecting money from the church for this enterprise. The church was caught in a bind they have, they have been promoting the crusade for time immemorial. And in Castile, they have to pay for this privilege. So the kings of Castile had control of the church, which was not the same everywhere throughout Western Europe. So essentially, attacks against Granada were always uh, a business. Besides, there are no kings in the history of late medieval Iberia, that includes Portugal, and the Crown of Aragon, although the Crown of Aragon is not so keen on this uh, crusading efforts. After all, they have Mediterranean interests and Mediterranean ambitions as far away in the east as Athens and the Duchy of Athens. But there cannot be a king, even kings who are so eccentric as Henry IV, who is capable of ruling without making at least a show
0: of wanting to go and fight on the frontier against Granada. Mm-hmm. Uh, so shifting focus a little over to the kingdom of Aragon, uh, so why is it that when Martin I of Aragon uh, died without a male heir, uh, the Aragonese noble and commercial elite elected Ferdinand de Vantiquera, uh, a Trastamara and a foreigner, as king? And weren't there fears that this uh, this descendant of a Castilian king Um, Might embroil them in an an unwanted war with (laughs) Castile.
2: The the compromise of Caspe, which leads to the election of Ferdinand of Antequera, Ferdinand I, as king of the Crown of Aragon, was a very complicated affair. The nobility in the Crown of Aragon is as divided or much more so than it was in the Kingdom of Castile especially because you have, although they are great noble families that have possessions and titles in all of the three kingdoms, it's nonetheless three different kinds of nobility. There is also, so they are claimants from some of these noble families. I think that the the balance is tipped by Vicente Ferrer, who had a tremendous importance in the kingdom, and who certainly advocated for the Castilian King. In some respects, the selection of Ferdinand of Antequera, who was a regent of Castile where there is a minor child, is also the extension of the Trastamara family throughout the peninsula. But it is also perhaps in the earlier stages of this this reign, which did not last very long, it was also a, a way of securing peace with Castile because after all, he had as much interest in Castile as he's had in the Crown of Aragon. And his children, the very troublesome Infantes of Aragon, will be great Castilian lords and will create immense troubles for Castile and for the history of Castile throughout the middle of the early part of and the middle of the 15th century. So it is a very complex process in which several different should we say centers of power mobility, the mercantile elites, but mostly the church, decide on a compromise, which is why it's called the Compromise of Casper, selecting I, Ferdinand the First Ferdinand the First as King of the Crown of Aragon. He was also had already gained a great reputation as a soldier, as a leader of armies, in fact he's called Ferdinand of Antequera, because of its great victory, and Antequera, which is one of the truly real first victories after the conquest of the mid 13th century. So, you know, there are many things at play in this election, but not necessarily
0: fear of Castile as an enemy. So, uh, marriage was often a tool uh, throughout the Middle Ages, not just in Spain, uh, used to end political conflict, but oftentimes these marriage alliances, like so many other, other times, were transient at best. Uh, in some cases, marriage even created n- dangerous new conflict, as with John of Gaunt's marriage to Costanza of Castillo, which threatened both the reigns of Henry II and John I. Uh, do you ultimately see matrimony as more pacifying or agitating force in the context of late medieval Spain? It is very uh, significant and important that
2: marriages are attempts at peace or attempts at creating alliances or preventing war. That does not always work. Essentially what it is is that there are so many other factors at at play that it's very difficult to determine where a marriage is going to lead to peace or not. Essentially what you're trying to do is a great strategy to create alliances and sometimes to Unified kingdoms. That's the that's the, the policies of the Catholic monarchs. They want to unify the peninsula. They marry their oldest daughter, um, having no male heir. Although in Castile women could inherit the crown and they did, but marrying their daughter to the, the heir to the kingdom of Portugal will have united, in theory, the entire peninsula. It did not work. They die. Mm -hmm. Isabella dies, I mean, the the young princess, the the heir who is born has only a very short life. So essentially you end up with a very different kind of outcome. An outcome which is the marriage of uh, of Johanna the Mad and Philip the Handsome from Flanders and leads to the coming of the Habsburgs into Spain. So marriages are always thought there is a point in which Marriages are no longer regional or kingdom-wide affairs, but they are international affairs, which begins very early in the 13th and 14th century, in which you seek alliances beyond. I think on the whole, they are more beneficial than they are essentially
0: damaged to the peace or, or prosperity of the realm. mm mm-hmm. Uh, So perhaps more so than any other Western European country, the nobility and monarchs of Castile have acquired a reputation for their sheer cruelty and ruthlessness. Is this a well-deserved reputation? I think that
2: this is a a kind of preview of the black legend. (laughs) The Castilian kings could be quite brutal in the exercise of the power, and so were the nobility, but that is not very different from... What happens in England or France, or what happens in Italian city states, and so on, where violence is part and parcel of the life of of the kingdom, and of course part and parcel of the life of the nobility. Uh, I think of France, where you know the Duke of Orleans is uh, is killed by people commissioned by the Duke of Burgundy in 1407. Uh, Think of the incredible violence that agitates Paris with different factions or different noble factions. So this is uh, think of the violence of England in the 15th century, the War of the Roses, the the removal of kings. Uh, in some respects, uh, the kingdoms of the kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula, I think, are not any cooler than all the kingdoms in the Middle Ages throughout Europe. And it's part and parcel of a culture of violence, which is medieval. And there is a wonderful book by one of the classic books in, in European medieval history by Johannes Hoisinger called The Autumn of the Middle Ages. And it begins with a chapter, or at least the, the earlier version, the early translation, we began with a chapter on the violent tenor of life. And this is Flanders. Uh, so this is part and
0: parcel of, of medieval political culture. So the Spaniards, well bad, were probably not worse than many others. <laughs> I, 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 I will
2: suggest that, and I think that there is a, a retroactive appreciation, or should we say, representations of Spain, which emerged out of the Black Legend and the formation of the Black Legend in the 16th century. Uh, and it's found in, in the foes, Robinson Crusoe, and, and in many, many, many other works, which is the depiction of a Spain as this very inquisitorial,
0: dark place, which is not always true. Uh, so moving on to your book, Spanish Society, 1400 to 1600, uh, you mentioned the theory of convivencia, uh, the idea that Jews, Muslims, and Christians lived on fairly amicable terms in the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, to start off, could you describe the main minority groups living in Spain, the Moriscos, Conversos, Mudejares, uh, Gitanos, Judíos? Uh, and what advantages did these groups possess in Iberia that were absent in other parts of Europe?
2: I, I love your accent, your, your Castilian accent there. I was absolutely wonderful. <laughs> but I, I, I also uh, would like to, to say that if I use the term convivencia, it's essentially to criticize it. Yes, Uh, That is to say that I do not uh, sort of believe that all these diverse groups live together in perfect peace. By the contrary, the relationships were fraught with a great deal of uh, antagonism, violence and the like. Having said that, I have to say also that the Iberian Peninsula is one of the last European countries where you have, and certainly the only unique, the only European, Western European country with large religious minorities and other groups. Sicily was so until the 12th century, but it was certainly not so in the very late Middle Ages. So what groups are there? And That's the first question you ask me. Yes. There are Jews, Jews who have come to the peninsula, are probably from the very first century of the Christian era, uh, after the diaspora of the Jewish population out of Palestine. They lived in, in the Iberian Peninsula until mm, theoretically 1492. Jews who convert in large numbers in 1391 or who convert in large numbers in 1412, 1313 13, are called conversos. They are new Christians. This is a title that is given to them. In theory, they are as Christians as anybody else, but distinctions begin to be made between all and no Christians. So Jews and conversos. Then you have Muslims. They have come into the peninsula in 711. They are a rather heterogeneous group composed mostly of Berbers from North Africa, Arabs, Slavic people, and large, large number of people who converted to Islam in the first decades of the conquest in the 8th century. So a great deal of people in southern Andalusia and so on converted to Islam in the 8th century. They are forced to convert in the early 16th century. And they are called, in a pejorative term, moriscos. Now, there are three categories here that are significant. Muslims, those are people who lived in the peninsula
1: with their own rule. So the Muslims in Seville before before 1248,
2: or the Muslims in Granada before 1492, like, who are Muslims living on the Christian rule, even though there are fatwas from North Africa that insist that Muslims should not live on the Christian rule, and then Moriscos, who are nominally converted to Christianity. And you have of course gypsies but they come very late the gypsies are uh, uh, entered the peninsula in the late 15th century uh, and roma history which is how we should really describe them the roma people are people with a history but it's a very complicated one because they are essentially people who are very elusive and difficult to pin down by the authorities. I would like to add to this that Jews are expelled from England in the late 13th century. They are expelled from northern France in the early 14th century. They are expelled from the area of Naples around 1285. They are expelled from southern France in the late 14th century. So essentially, Jews inter- the Western world, in the Western European have, you know, they are the Jews in Germany, they are Jews in Eastern Europe, they are Jews in Italy, but everywhere else there is not a lot, you know, they have been essentially eliminated. When Shakespeare writes about Shylock in the merchants of Venice, they have not been a Jew in England since the late 13th century and will not be any until
0: Cromwell in the 17th century. So these are complicated issues. All right. Uh, so I mean, you. I'm missing some part of your question. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, um, I mean, how would you critique the view of condivencia?
2: <laughs> I think that there is a new work by somebody named Brian, who's a very wonderful and productive historian named Brian Catlus who used the word conveniencia. That is to say, that these relationships are really dictated by the convenience
1: and so on. It's very clear that. In the early Caliphate, in the 8th and
2: nine and even into the 10th century, Islam has a kind of protective attitude towards Jews and Christians who essentially thrive in the caliphal court. But that was always understood that you pay, as which you mentioned in your question, that you pay a certain tax to the Caliph because they are the dhimmi, the people of the book, and therefore they are allowed to maintain the religion. Unlike others who are not. And that turns essentially sour when the Almoravids, which is a kind of a far more religious group, come from North Africa, and then when the Almohads come in the 12th century. But essentially, what we have is periods of relative peace, periods of relative animosity, periods of violence. And it is also dictated by local condition, by the context. And I have worked on this, and I show, for example, that in the city of Avila, and I will talk about this little at the end, the city of Avila, Jews and Muslims coexist with Christians in fairly peaceful terms until the very end of the Middle Ages. There is no programs there in the third. In 1391, there is not a great deal of violence that is reported against them. Whereas in the city of Burgos, the entire Jewish community is erased in 1391. And there are, you know, in the kingdom of Valencia, there are attacks against the Moriscos. So a great deal of this violence is localized. Mm -hmm. I think the best book on this is a book by David Nirenberg entitled Communities of Violence, which shows the intricacies and difficulties of these relationships, which are dictated by local conditions, but also by ways in which violence is ritualized as forms of inclusion as well.
0: All right, so moving on to the uh, topic of expulsion. So for most of these minority groups, of course, do end up getting expelled. Uh, so first with the Jews, you write, uh, quote, some point out that the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, were personally friendly to Jews, Uh, Other historians accuse the conversos of pushing for expulsion as a way to protect their own lives and wealth, now threatened by the Inquisition. And yet others point to the heightened religious and national fervor, uh, which was fueled uh, by inquisitorial practices and by the achievement of national unity after the conquest of Granada. So what do you ultimately see as the principal motive behind the Edict of Expulsion in 1492? Getting rid of all the Jews. I think that, that with all historical questions, it's very
2: difficult to pin down one single cause. Uh, historians have debated both the establishment of the Inquisition in, officially in 1484, although it exists in Castile since 1478, or the Edict of Expulsion. And there are many, many different, uh, should we say, ways of interpreting this. Henry Kamen has argued in an article almost 20 years ago that the Edict of Expulsion was not really an Edict of Expulsion, but an Edict of Conversion. And that in that sense, it was fairly successful in as much as a large number of Jews converted to Christianity in the wake of the Edict in 31st March, 1492. But I think that there is also... I think the conversos play a role in the establishment of the Inquisition as a way of proving their orthodoxy protecting themselves but they certainly play a far less important role on the issue of expulsion and we know now that conversos and and jews maintain relations which were not as antagonistic as we thought once in fact sometimes they were very close relationships and i will talk a little bit about that later but one of the things that is uh, significant and important is that there is also the, the kind of uh, heroic deeds of 1st and 2nd January of 1492, when the last bastion of Islam falls down. I think that this has to be placed also in the wider context of European culture and politics. The late Middle Ages was a period of great uncertainty and angst and fear the closing down of the village communities, the kind of deterioration of the village community, enclosing of land, the discovery of the new world, the, the scale of economies, the voyage to India, all that creates a kind of anxieties that lead in places other places to the writing of the malus maleficarum of the Wish craze which kills probably 80,000 mostly elderly women so you have these this attempts to consolidate kingdoms. It happens in France as well, with Louis XI and so on, consolidate kingdoms to define who belongs and who does not belong. And in this case, the Jews who were thought to be, well, the Jews who seemed to be an attraction for conversers to engage in heterodox practices, become a target for all these forces at work.
0: All right, great. moving on to another very interesting minority group, the Moriscos, again these are the Muslims uh, forced to convert to Christianity, so why do you think that they so poorly assimilated to Spanish life in comparison to other minority groups such as the Jews? Uh, as you mentioned, Philip II had tried to Christianize them by banning, quote, the use of Arabic, the traditional Morisco garb, and manners of eating that identified Moriscos with Islamic culture. And an e- even more extreme move, the Crown agreed that Morisco children were to be taken away from their parents and brought up as Christian children. So these methods seem like they would be pretty effective normally. What happened?
2: Well, I think that this is. Converso community, that is the Jewish Converso community, and the Muslim Converso community, the Moriscos, are two very different populations. One is urban, the first one. The second one is mostly rural, although there are artisans in the towns as well. I think that one significant and important component of the resistance
0: of Moriscos to assimilate into Christian, in the Christian world, is one, that the leadership of the Morisco community mostly migrated to North Africa. Two, that there is always the the fact that North
2: Africa, and especially in the 16th century, when proxies for the Ottoman world are very active, attacking the coast of Spain, so that all these, these places our attractions to Moriscos because they are just across the sea from us and they can help us. So, that's what that means, one, that there is a kind of absence of leadership and this is significant and important because essentially depending on one social class and economic status, one tends to be more, shall so we say, embracing of certain traditions. This is clear in the fact that a good number of the moriscos, especially in the Crown of Aragon, are rural labor. They maintain their language, which is another reason why it's difficult to assimilate in true Christian world. They retain their Arabic. They speak in Arabic. They even write in a form of Latinized Arabic called al So essentially there are all these components that make them resist assimilation. It is a group that will be seen by
1: those in power as being an internal fifth column
2: in essentially alliance with the Ottoman fleets and the Ottoman pirates and the Ottoman corsairs and as a threat to the security of Spain and therefore they are often the subjects of great violence. And they answer back. That is to say, they they are armed to the teeth, they will defend themselves, and they will try to pre- to to preserve the cultural traits. Philip II essentially fails. He actually won after a sort of a very strenuous war in the Alpujarra Mountains. They dispersed the Moriscos throughout the Kingdom of Castile, they kill some, they sold others into slavery. It did not change the situation one iota and in the kingdom of aragon this was even more critical so when in the early 17th century three hundred thousand of them probably were expelled from the land and you could see the, the the pain of this in don quixote in the second volume of don quixote there is a scene where one of these moriscos tried to return to his village in la mancha and the pain of exile because while they were not assimilated the reality is that some of them were truly christians and have essentially created lives that last that had almost a thousand years in the iberian peninsula so it's it's a hard point
0: of assimilating these people into a society So, how economically harmful do you think uh, the expulsion of the Moriscos was to Spain? You write that some cities, such as Valencia, found, quote, a valuable and inexpensive labor force in these thrifty and industrious Muslim converts. They were very thrifty, very uh, uh,
2: productive. The expulsion of the Moriscos in the early 17th century, 1609 onwards, was really one more blow to the Spanish economy because the Spanish economy was already in serious difficulties by the end of the 16th century. Philip II has to declare bankruptcy three times during his reign. So you could see where most of the money is going to pay for wars in Central Europe or to try to quell the incredible, brutal
0: rebellion in the low countries. And this is even with uh, the New World silver flowing in. Uh, Well, the silver went through Spain
2: like a sieve to pay bankers and to try to maintain these armies in Central Europe fighting religious wars or trying to contain the Dutch rebels. The Low Countries was a quagmire in which the Spanish monarchy was completely absorbing and would be eventually destroyed. They are locusts infestations people are fleeing Castile, so there were all kinds of issues before the expulsion of the Moriscos the Moriscos expulsion affected most of all the crown of Aragon because they as you mentioned before they they were a very inexpensive form of rural labor and very significant and important I give you an example of how these things happened even before the expulsion when the Castilian armies defeat the rebels in the Alpujarra mountains in what was an incredibly brutal guerrilla warfare, they expel everybody. They move the populations out of the mountains of the Alpujarras and they bring Christian settlers, who immediately proceeded to destroy the mulberry trees and the silk worms. and The silk industry, which was a significant and important economic part of. Granada economy or And Castilian economy sort of went belly up. Mm-hmm. That happens in the Crown of Aragon as well in the early 17th century.
0: So why do you think the Muslims were expelled in 1504, despite promises of tolerance by the Catholic monarchs?
2: They were not expelled. They were given the choice of leaving or converting. Uh,
1: the very early uh, presence of the First bishop
2: of Granada was someone who essentially uh, tried to convert the Muslims peacefully. In 1499, there was a, an uprising in the Alpujarras mountains. It's the first Alpujarras rebellion. And after that, the Christians became quite adamant about erasing the Muslim presence first in Castile, and later on in the Crown of Aragon. As I said, many of the leadership and the religious leaders of the community fled to the North Africa because the fatwa that indicated that people should not live, Muslims should not live on the Christian rule. But the majority of the people could not leave; They didn't have the resources or indeed the the will to do so. And it was very easy to convert, especially when In this early period, the Inquisition really paid very little attention to the Moriscos. The Inquisition was very much fixed on conversos and converso activity remained, uh, anti-converso activity by the Inquisition remained very much in place until 1520s, 1530s. And it's only then that they turned their eye on the Moriscos only to realize that even though that they have been nominally Christians for 30 years, they, they did not speak Castilian, or Aragonese, or Catalan, or Valencian, they did not understand
0: a word about Christianity, and they didn't really care. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so, why is it that the uh, Gypsies were never expelled, uh, unlike the similarly unpopular Jews and Muslims? Because, as I
2: said, the Roma, you have to catch them in order to expel them. Now, remember, they are very punitive. Uh, The gypsies are nominally Christian. Uh, That's not the problem. It's not a a religious problem. And if you go to southern France, the Camar, and you go to St. Marie de Vens, the the Church of the the Marys, uh, which is a center of Santa Sara, which is one of the favorite uh, saints for the Roma community you could see that the, the, the culture is very much essentially mixed with Christianity. So they are not Jews, they are not Muslims. They are Christians, maybe nominally, but they cannot be accused of being a religious minority. What it is, is that they are, a, a, should we say, an elusive population that moves from place to place, that has no, should we say, settlement, that do not partake of the estate. At a moment in which the state is asking more and more from its citizens, service in the army, taxation, and the like, they are escaping all of that as they do to this very day. And uh, the, this, this, the rule during Philip II gives is between a certain ages of 18 and 26, where to serve in the galleys, which meant sure death. The problem is you have to catch them, and so they, since they are difficult to Find and very much, you know, Cervantes, who was so tolerant and understanding of both Jews and, and Muslims, who sort of had a rather negative attitude towards the Gypsies or the Roma. Let's call that for what they are. And I find the Roma one of the most fascinating people in human history. I like to point out that the Roma die in greater percentage in the Nazi concentration camps than anybody else. And that they still find, and they are still under very severe uh, restrictions and prejudice and
0: hatred in not only in Eastern Europe, but in Western capitals as well. So uh, we touched on this theme a little bit, but why do you think the Spanish monarchy decided to expel all these minority groups rather than merely impose a sort of Christian uh, jizya tax on them? Certainly the idea would have been conceivable given the long history of Muslim rule in the peninsula, and the Muslims did exactly the same to the Christians. Not expel them, but merely tax them. (laughs) Well, I think I really went a little bit over these things and and pointed out
2: that essentially... uh, You know, it is the context that really dictates. There is no idea of spelling Jews or Muslims, certainly not uh, until the very end of the 15th century. Mm -hmm. They do pay taxes. They are an important financial resource for the crown.
0: But they don't pay an additional tax because of their religion. No, they don't. But they are, in
2: theory, Jews are the serfs of the crown. And they represent, they they do not pay a tax for being Jews, but they pay a tax for being essentially linked to the crown. And the Jewish tax, and the Muslim tax to a far lesser extent than the Jewish tax, is quite, quite significant. And we have accounts from the late 13th century and from afterwards which shows how significant these contributions were. And these are Contributions made by the Jews to the crown. Part of the animosity against the Jews is, or the Muslims, is that they are somewhat exempted from municipal jurisdiction because they are under the direct jurisdiction of the crown, and they pay the taxes to the crowns and they are exempted from municipal or ecclesiastical town taxes in their own towns.
0: Okay. Uh, So, switching to a different theme, eating habits between social classes. Uh, So you explain, quote, there was hell to pay for the privilege of overeating, heart disease, gout, constipation, and other nasty consequences. We now know that the rough and often meatless diet of the poor was, in a perverse way, healthier than that of their masters. So, what would the typical peasant's diet have consisted in? And do you think that nobles had a Higher average life expectancy than peasants, despite their rather poor eating habits? It's very difficult to calculate uh, the, the sort of the
2: life span of social classes in this period because we don't have the sufficient records to establish them. We can establish the average age of, of royal families because they die and so on. Nobilities, on the whole, I would say, live longer than the people at the bottom uh what else is new right yeah. uh, they they, they uh, of course they don't eat as healthy as uh, the people at the bottom but they do not suffer from hunger and malnutrition and brutal work and terrible conditions and illnesses that so they have better doctors and so on than the people at the bottom so even though they ate all these things that are we will try to exclude from our diet today, nonetheless, and they, and they eat conspicuously, I mean they eat in large amounts because power is essentially articulated through the showing of how much you can eat and what wonderful things you can eat which are forbidden to be eaten by people below you. Nonetheless, they, they have other advantages in their lives. Which is makes their life probably longer than that of peasants or urban workers.
0: Uh, so, how, so uh, relative to eating peasant food, how strange would it have been for the nobility to adopt Muslim dress and culinary habits, as as did Henry the Fourth? Well, I have to say to you
2: that they had, first of all, most of the Spanish cuisine, especially in the south, and and. reflects to a large extent the the long imprint of Islam on the peninsula. Uh, And of course, in Spain to this very day, food is tied to the region. You don't eat the same in the north as you eat in the south. And you do not eat in the same fashion as you do depending on the region, depending on the climate and things like that. But there is also the lard and olive oil divide. Um, Muslims and Jews will cook with olive oil, which gives a particular special smell. People in the north, until until yesterday, ate with lard. Um, so you know there are all these differences, so that there is the appropriation not only of language, but also of culinary taste and of special products and crops, so that. There is a kind of interaction between cultures across the culinary divide. Obviously Muslims and Jews will not eat pork, uh, which is the absolutely main staple of most Western European countries, but lamb is available and so on. Um, the diet changes, how people eat, the caloric intake and so on changes dramatically. From one period to the other. And because of the drinking of wine and the drink and eating of lard and so on, the caloric intake is quite high when we compare it with today's caloric intake.
0: Uh, you mentioned that, uh, unlike in Western Europe, there was really no witch craze in Spain. Uh, so, uh, was, was the Spanish Inquisition, infamous for its bigoted persecution, more pragmatic in who it targeted than other European equivalents? There is a big case in the early 17th
2: century in the Basque mountains, uh, mostly uh, denunciations by children, which are very common throughout the witch craze in Western Europe. And the grand inquisitor comes, his name was Salazar, and he comes to the country and dismisses the whole thing as absolutely sheer nonsense and hysteria. Now, was it because the inquisition is more enlightened than the rest of Europe? The inquisition in the rest of Europe in, in Germany and in France and so on, are, are, are burning people right and left. It's just that the Ind,
0: the Iberian Peninsula, they were all the targets. Oh, perhaps not necessarily more enlightened, but merely pragmatic. If you believe that witches are completely made up, then you'd say, well, the real enemies well, also, are not need, witches. You don't need witches when you have heretics and Protestants Precisely. and Catholics and, and
2: conversos and, and moriscos oh. to deal with. So, you know, I I think that a great deal of these persecutions, which are so widespread throughout the late Middle Ages and the early modern periods, and which lead to horrors such as the witch craze or the establishment of the Spanish Inquisition, which is a very different Inquisition from other Inquisitions, is, is, is also a search for ways of diverting the attention of people from the real crises. To very specific targets. And if I may say so, uh, not much has changed to this
0: very day. Uh, so, moving on to your The City and the Realm, Burgos and Castile, 1080 to 1492. I apologize for translating these essays. You write in your book that uh, they do lose some meaning, but I'm going to have to do it here. Uh, quote, The stereotype of the merchant that obtains their fortune through tricks and craftiness is similar in other parts of Europe where merchants tried at the end of their days to remedy the errors of their profession through pious donations. Uh, What was the average Spaniard's opinion of merchants? And to what extent did Spanish merchants see themselves as sinners, despite almost undeniably providing far far more value for humanity than the nobility?
2: Uh, we have been changing and I, I have changed my mind on many of these issues prompted by new discoveries by new books I think that uh, there has always been this stereotype of uh, the Spanish merchant or the Spanish craftsman has been despised for his lack of mobility by uh, not playing a significant role in the economy of Spain which is a a traditional economy dependent upon the export of raw materials and, and taxes on the, on the transhumans and things like that. Uh, I think that we think differently today, as a historian named Hilario Casado has written widely on these topics. The merchants are very enterprising, but they are also Christians, which means that very much like in the rest of Europe up to the 16th century, and certainly in the Middle Ages and in the early Middle Ages, they are concerned with the salvation, which means that while investing and making money out of money and of trade and things like that, they are also, especially those who are very successful, engaged in pious
1: donations, in making pious donations in the wills and testaments, in the specific burials in churches and all that. Uh,
2: there is, there, there is a, a certain amount in the literature of resentment against this position, but that is also found in other parts of Europe as well. Uh,
0: So you explain in your uh, Una Nota Sobre la Estructura y Relaciones Fiscales del Burcos Bajo Medieval, uh, quote, During the late Middle Ages, the Castilian kings were obligated to depend on the Mesta and on the Jews as the only sources of income that they could trust regularly. Given their value as taxpayers, were Spanish kings reluctant to allow persecution of Jews? Certainly their relative inaction during the pogroms of 1391 would suggest otherwise.
2: Well, the, the truth of the matter, of course, the, the sources of income for the crown, and it, dep- it changes from the crown of Aragon, the, the, it changes from Catalonia to Aragon, from Castile to Aragon, and things like that. But let's, let's use Castile, which is the winner of the, of the of this antagonisms at the very end of the Middle Ages, the kings of Castile get income from their own domains, from the royal domain, which is they are feudal lords of this royal domain, they get income that is voted to them by Parliament, what we call the Cortes in Castile, or the Cortes in Catalonia. So the kings in all the Iberian realms depend upon the Cortes. Voting, subsidies, they are also territorial taxes that are not dependent on the Cortes. They are paid annually, and they go to pay for military campaigns or or so on. The problem is that both in the Crown of Aragon and in Castile, the kings find their relations with the Cortes very difficult. The Cortes represent not only the high nobility and the clergy, but the people from the towns, the represent from the towns, the merchants and artisans and the people who control the elites of the towns, the oligarchical groups in towns. And since they find a, a terrible ordeal to work with this parliament, they come to depend, especially after 1276 when the MESTA expands, the transhuman expands into the south, into the newly conquered lands, come to depend on these taxes, that are the taxes of the movement of cattle all back and forth in the peninsula and the use of grazing lands. And then the tax on the Jews, which I already pointed out, are very significant and important as a way in which they can actually depend on a, a sort of a steady source of income that is not dependent on the politics of parliament or the Cortes. So this is a process that begins only in the late 13th and early 14th century. And that is most evident just before the Catholic monarchs come to power, when they will undertake a very substantial fiscal reform, seeking for other ways of gaining taxes. By the way, this is also not uh, different from France in the 14th century. The English, however, had a parliament that worked, the king, the parliament has a great deal of power and realized that subsidizing the monarchy was important and significant. Uh, there's something that I should add because it it sort of connects with other things. The, one of the earlier questions on the nobility, the, part, the, the courtes realized that it's The presence of the king that keeps the nobility at bay and therefore the cities will be allies of the crown against the nobility. A nobility that is essentially predatory and therefore it has to be kept in check
0: by a king with some sort of power which means some sort of income. Alright, last question. What new projects are you working on? I'm working on two projects are present. I finished a book on the Western Mediterranean and the world, which was published uh, early this year, or early
2: last year. I have no idea, and I don't remember it anymore, but I'm working <laughs> on two projects. One is uh, a project completely out of the Middle Ages. Uh, it will either be a very long monographic article or a small book. There is a collection of documents in the Crown of Aragon archives, which is the richest archives in Europe, called Protest, Against the sea, and is between
1: 1766 and 1868, and these are captains of ships. There are
2: 25,000 such depositions who come to the to the consulate of commerce and complain that the cargo has been damaged by a tempest, sea, a storm, uh, high water, things like that. The documents are very interesting. They actually tell you. Who the captain of the ship was, the name of the ship, where was the register, what was the cargo, where it comes from, what merchants in Barcelona uh, sort of commissioned these this goods to be come to Barcelona. And uh, also, they describe the place where the maritime disaster took place. They have a translator to come and make the depositions. And they are very formulaic because they are probably insurance claims. But nonetheless, they are very informative as well. I am doing now, I'm quite into writing uh, something in 1868, which is the last year, Barcelona, in which I tried to depict the trade of Barcelona with the world, uh, the Black Sea, Scandinavia, what products are coming, why, and tie it to the expansion of Barcelona. So that's one project. The other project, is something that i am beginning to to think about in fact today i wrote to someone in spain to go to the archives and look for me for this is that i wrote an article a freshman a freshman article that is a contribution to someone's uh, actually in this case there, uh, death and i found a document in avila in the very late 15th century and it's a contract between a jewish blacksmith and a christian family the daughter of a christian family is marrying the son of this jewish blacksmith they are marrying in the church the jew agrees to pay for the pillows and that clothing which is a very expensive proposition in the middle ages whereas the christian family is going to pay for the groom and the bride's clothing and i found this very interesting because the condition is that the young man, who is clearly converting to Christianity, and there is a very good chance that the Christian family was also a converso family, needs to, re- to remain working for the father in the, the Smith business. And it, it sort of shows how
0: malleable and fluid conditions are in this world. All right. Thank you very much. We spoke with Teofilo Ruiz about his book Spain's Centuries of Crisis, Spanish Society, 1400 to 1600, and The City and the Realm. Thank you very much for your time, Professor Ruiz. Uh, if you enjoyed this installment of the History Twins podcast, there will be another next week, also available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Until next time, I'm Tristan Kaplan. And I'm Aiden Kaplan. And together we are the History, History Twins.
1: Twins.